I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is Episode 7 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking in New York. On Part 7, we'll finish up Chapter 2 and get into Chapter 3. That some Seattle families grew out of love affairs in the Illahee is not inconceivable. Women were few, and man could not be choosy, especially a man who patronized the establishment. There were, however, many who considered such marriages undesirable, and among them was a righteous and energetic youngster named Asa Mercer, fresh from the civilized Midwest. Young Mercer was the brother of Judge Tom Mercer, a solid citizen who had arrived in 1852 with a team of horses and had prospered as Seattle's first teamster. Asa worked as a carpenter on the new Territorial University building, which was going up on the hill northeast of the Skid Road, and when the building was finished, he moved inside as president and faculty of the institution. One day, during a conversation on the territory's topic A, the shortage of maidens worthy to become the wives of pioneers, Judge Tom remarked that in the interests of posterity, the territorial government should appropriate public funds to bring west a party of acceptable young ladies. The idea had an understandable appeal to the 22-year-old university president, who was unmarried and moral. He took it up with the governor, William Pickering, Washington's fourth governor, was a husky, spade-bearded man in his mid-sixties. He agreed as to the need, but sadly called Mercer's attention to the lack of public money. Asa decided to carry off his venture as a private enterprise. There's a footnote in this paragraph. Isaac Stevens resigned the governorship in 1857 after having been elected territorial delegate to Congress. He later re-entered the army and was killed at Bull Run. Fayette McMullen, a Virginian, succeeded Stevens and used his time in the territory mainly to get a legislative divorce and to court, successfully, an Olympia girl. The third governor, Richard Golson, served less than a year, resigning after Lincoln's election because he was, quote, unwilling even for a day to hold office under a Republican, unquote. Lincoln named William H. Wallace as Golson's successor, but Wallace instead ran for the better-paying position of territorial delegate and was elected. Later, Lincoln appointed him governor of Idaho, and again he ran for Congress instead of serving. In Wallace's place, Lincoln named Pickering, an Oxford graduate who had been chairman of the Illinois delegation to the Republican convention in 1860. Mercer talked to a number of Seattle's frustrated young men, and after pocketing an unspecified amount of contributions, caught a ship for Boston. The daughters of that sedate community were not to be talked into venturing west, but in Lowell, the young proselyter found more attentive listeners. Lowell was a textile town, racked with depression since the Civil War had cut off southern cotton from its looms, and there Mercer found eleven virgins willing to forsake the land of the cod. They sailed from New York, crossed the Panama Isthmus, rest briefly in San Francisco, where some enterprising Californians tried to talk the maidens into easing the region's shortage of pure females, and went by schooner to the Sound. They debarked at Yesler's Wharf about midnight, May 16, 1864, and were welcomed by a delegation headed by Doc Maynard. With the exception of one girl who took sick and died unwed, all the girls soon found husbands. The details of the courtships are unknown, and it is uncertain whether the maidens married the men who had financed Mercer's trip. As for Asa, his grateful contemporaries elected him, unanimously, to the upper house of the territorial legislature. The young legislator thought less of laws than lasses. He wanted to import young women not by the short dozen, but by the hundred. Soon he was circulating through the territory, talking confidentially to lonesome bachelors. His proposition was simple. For $300 paid in advance, he would bring a suitable wife. There were several takers, how many only Mercer knew, but enough so that he started east in high spirits and with great confidence. 
he talked of bringing back enough girls to provide mates for every single man west of the Cascades. Everything went wrong. Lincoln was shot, and Asa, who had known him slightly, lost a potential ally. Mercer didn't know President Johnson, but General Grant, who knew from personal experience how lonely a man could get among the rainforests, promised to lend Mercer a transport. But the quartermaster general quickly pointed out that such use of federal property was illegal. Then, out of nowhere, appeared an angel, a wartime speculator named Ben Holliday, who offered to buy the surplus transport and carry Mercer's 500 charges around the horn to Seattle, quote, for a minimum price, unquote. Mercer quickly signed a contract. The trouble was he didn't have 500 passengers. He didn't have half that many. He didn't even have 100. For this, Mercer blamed the New York Herald and its cross-eyed editor, James Gordon Bennett. The recruiting drive had been going well, Asa wrote his backers, until it attracted the attention of the Herald, which ran an expose of the project. The expose implied that most of the girls were destined for waterfront dives on Puget Sound, and if anyone did gain a legal mate, she must resign herself to the fact he would probably be ugly, ill-mannered, and probably diseased. And the footnote says, a Seattle woman who has been doing research on the Mercer expedition for three years tell me that she has been unable to find the Herald editorials quoted by Mercer. Massachusetts authorities investigated too, though hardly thoroughly. Since no politician is likely to admit that young women would do better to leave his state, the report implied that Mercer's girls might be headed for a fate worse than Mormonism. Besides getting a bad press, Mercer was up against the fact that it was easier for his prospects to say they'd make the voyage than it was for them to walk up the gangplank, leaving behind them all that was familiar. When the day came to sail, January 6, 1866, fewer than a hundred nubile passengers appeared. Mercer sold passages reserved for girls to men and married women, but he was far short of filling his 500 reservations. Holiday demanded payment in full. He didn't get it, but he got every cent Mercer had. Once at sea, Asa figured his financial worries were over. Three months later, the ship docked at San Francisco. The captain ordered everyone ashore. This, he said, was as far as he was going. Mercer argued and lost. When they put him ashore, he rushed to the telegraph office and wired Governor Pickering, quote, send $2,000 quick to get party to Seattle, unquote. Pickering wired back his best wishes, collect. In desperation, Mercer appealed to the skippers of the lumber schooners that plied between Seattle and San Francisco. These gentlemen, pleased at the prospect of feminine companionship on what was usually a dull voyage, took them fare free. A few of the girls decided to stay in California, and who can blame them? Mercer himself must have been tempted to stay. He had spent every cent that had been given to him. He'd brought back fewer girls than he had promised, and those not on schedule. He must have known the home folks weren't going to elect him to the legislature for this performance. On Mercer's return to Seattle, rumors spread, wild and ugly. On May 23rd, the Puget Sound Daily carried a front-page story saying that, quote, Honorable A.S. Mercer will address the citizens of Seattle and vicinity at Yesler's Hall this evening for the purpose of refuting the numerous stories that have been circulated in regard to himself in connection with his immigration enterprise, unquote. The editor urged, quote, turn out everybody and hear the other side of the question, unquote. The report of the meeting is irritatingly incomplete. Quote, Reverend Daniel Bagley was called to the chair, who briefly stated the object of the meeting, which was to hear an address by Mr. A.S. Mercer in regard to his experience while in the East conducting the famous immigration enterprise. Mr. Mercer then addressed the audience to which address marked attention was paid, the speaker being frequently applauded. The audience was composed, in part, of the fair immigrants who had so recently arrived, and it is a fact that no little weight 
in the vindication of Mr. Mercer's reputation against the assaults that had been made upon it, that those immigrants placed the utmost confidence in him. At the close, the chairman made a few very appropriate remarks, after which the meeting adjourned, apparently with the best of goodwill towards Mr. Mercer and all concerned, unquote. The night after Mercer's speech, a, quote, marvelous magical entertainment, unquote, was held at Yesler's. No matter how impressive the Leger de Maine, and the paper also gave it a rave notice, it could hardly have been as remarkable as Mercer's feat of pacifying with words the angry men who, after waiting almost a year for delivery of the women they had ordered, found themselves without brides and minus $300. Mercer himself married one of his imports, Annie Stevens, a few weeks later. They soon removed to the Rocky Mountain area where Asa lived out his days as a rancher as far from ships as he could get. John Pennell faded from the Seattle scene at almost the same time as Asa. He left for parts unknown, but the type of institution that he had founded on the sawdust fill south of Yesler Way did not vanish with him. Other entrepreneurs built bigger and better houses. The honky-tonk was there to stay. The skid road had been born. And we'll stop there at the end of the chapter called Mercer's Maidens. That concludes part one of Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking in New York. So that's also the end of episode seven of The Housebound Historian. For episode eight, we'll begin part two. I'm Felix Bunnell.